I don't know about you, but I think that last song is about the best news in the whole day. Am I wrong? No? Okay. All right. Are y'all alive? Is everybody awake? No. Okay. All right. All right. It's not just me. Um, I'm, I'm going to, anything that happens from here on out, I'm going to blame on sleep deprivation. Um, be, be, uh, okay. Turn me up just a smidge there, Jonathan. Okay. How about now? Can you hear me now? Okay, good. All right. So anything that happens after now, I'm going to blame on sleep deprivation because back in March, I decided it would be a great idea to adopt two puppies. And one of them, who shall not be named Skeeter, was very adamant that he deserved pulled pork at 2 o'clock this morning. By the way, they are half boxer and half hound. So when he gets adamant about something, he talks loudly, a lot. So it's a good thing today's service is not about me. It has been a while since I've been up here, obviously, because I am as rusty as all get out. Um, we have been, as Angel said, we've been uh, looking at John's gospel, and the last message was uh, finishing up with verse 21, um, the, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, and, and, of course, Nicodemus was asking Jesus about his authority, about his teaching. Um, this morning, we're going to take a look at the last 15 verses in the chapter. Um, if you want to start flipping there, that's that's chapter 3, verse 22. If you are one of those who still has an old-fashioned paper Bible, John chapter 3, verse 22. For those of you that are in the modern technology age, that is tap, 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 John chapter 3, verse 22. For those of you that are just going to wait until it shows up on the slides, that's fine too. Hopefully you'll be able to read it because apparently I can't judge font sizes. I told you this was a rough week. So I want to ask you a question before we look at the Scripture. What are the things in your life that you spend the most time talking about? Now, I know for myself, I, I, I am still full-time employed, and so I spend 40 hours-ish a week at work. So for those 40 hours, I spend a lot of time talking about work because that's what I'm doing. I would love to be able to say that when I get off work, I don't talk about work again. But back in 2018, I realized that if I don't talk about work and get those things off my chest, I have panic attacks. So I talk about work when I get home. Mothers with young children, I'm, I'm particularly in this congregation, Katie, that's you. <laughs> we'll get to mothers of older children. Parents of young children, young children that are going through those 
exploratory ages where they're starting to flex their independence and they discover things, right? Things that we take for granted because we discovered them when we were those ages, right? We talk to our friends and our family members about our kids. Um, we talk about our hobbies. Neil likes to fish. I like to eat. There you go. Cheryl likes art. I, I talk about my pets. Seth likes to stay outside in the heat for some reason. I don't know why. Seth doesn't talk about anything. I think it was like the first three years that I knew Seth, I thought he was mute. Then I realized it was just because he was with Cheryl. No. <laughs> We talk about our accomplishments, we talk about our struggles, we talk about friends that we have, friends that we've lost, family members. We spend time talking about the things that are important in our life, right? We did a little exercise in our Sunday school class this morning. Out of a seven-day week, we have roughly 109 hours every week that we are not engaged in either sleep or work. 109 hours a week. In those 109 hours, how many hours do you spend talking about Jesus? I hope it's not just the, the three hours that you're here on a Sunday morning. For those that are here for three hours on a Sunday morning, right? I, I hope there's more to it than that. It would be wrong of us, I would think, to say that God is important to us, Jesus is important to us, our salvation is important to us, and yet it's something we never talk about. That doesn't make sense. If, if I never introduced my wife to somebody, and yet I told them she was the most important person in my life here, would they believe me? That doesn't play out. In fact, a few of you know that, that a couple of months ago she went on a trip with her best friend. And it wasn't me. I made sure to rub that in the whole time she was gone. We spend time talking about what is important. And we probably spend the least amount of time talking about that which should be the most important in our lives. As followers of Christ we probably spend the least amount of time talking about Christ. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you've made your way to that scripture or if you're just relying on the screen. I'm going to turn the remote on now. I told you this is what you get when you ask for the second string. 
We're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. So John, the disciple, writes, After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please have a seat. So as Angel did a very good job this morning of spoiling my entire scripture passage, (laughs) that's what happens when, when she sends me a text and says, Hey, what are you preaching on? At some point... During or after, well, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus and the disciples go out into the Judean countryside. I really wanted to pull up a map, but I had computer problems, amongst other things, this week, so I did not have a map to put on the slide. Um, The Judean countryside, the Judean wilderness outside of Jerusalem, probably to the west of Jerusalem, is not a real hospitable place. What's that? Yeah, there there were robbers. There were there were snakes, scorpions. Uh, it's dry. It's desert. You know, I'm I'm from the the northern end of the Adirondack Mountain area. So when I say wilderness, I mean trees and green and foliage and and it's it's beautiful. When John says the Judean wilderness, not so much. It is a very inhospitable place. And that's where Jesus went, probably into an area between some towns. Since he was baptizing, it was definitely a location where there was water of some variety, right? And they were preaching the message, the same message that John the Baptist had been preaching outside of Jerusalem, and that is to repent and be baptized because the kingdom of God is at hand. John himself, John the Baptist, had moved to Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. 
Now, does anybody here know where Anon is? You ever heard of it before? Only when you've read this passage? (laughs) Right? It is um, up the Jordan River, um, about halfway between Jerusalem and Galilee. Um, As a matter of fact, it's not far from Shechem in Samaria, which is where chapter 4 picks up with Jesus and the woman at the well. Um, Anon, the word, the name of the town, or the location, means springs. So there were springs there. Water was plentiful. There There was a constant supply of water. John had been baptizing in the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem. And now he moved to another location because water was plentiful there. I'm going to tell you that's probably because we had moved to the dry season in Israel and the Jordan River was reduced to a trickle. Being in the desert, the Jordan River does not flow like the Mississippi River flows all year round. It, it flows big during flood season and it flows very little when it's dry. So John relocated to a place where there was more water, which would be this place where there were a lot of springs. And he was still calling them to repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand. He's in Samaria now. What do you know about the Samarian people, the Samaritans, and the Jews? They didn't get along with each other. Why? Hmm? Because of worship? That's one of the things they disagreed about. So when Solomon's son effectively caused the split of the kingdoms, the lower two and the upper ten. The upper ten kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, they were then taken into captivity by the Assyrians, right? And the Assyrians, when they took them into captivity, they didn't take those ten tribes and just pick them up and carry them to Assyria and leave the land empty. They took their people and brought them into the area of the ten tribes, And then people moved in and out and in and out and intermixed. And and all of a sudden you had people who were both Jewish and not. And they did worship in a different location. They worshiped on a different mountain. They didn't go to Jerusalem to worship. And they had other beliefs. And they were looked down upon by the Jews. And yet, John, knowing that they are, in fact, descendants of Abraham, at least some of them, is calling them to repentance too. And on top of that, you know, just incidentally, why was John there? Because the Holy Spirit put him there. You remember in the story of John the Baptist's birth that um, when, when Mary went to her cousin Elizabeth's house, Mary was very, very recently pregnant, and Elizabeth was quite pregnant and Mary said, "Hey cuz, what did Elizabeth say? The baby did cartwheels at the sound of Mary's voice because we're told that John was indwelt with the Holy Spirit at that time. John is the only person in scripture who is who is labeled that way. And so the Holy Spirit led him to that location to baptize. 
We don't know why. We just know that's what happened. Now, because they are in Samaria, it might almost seem surprising that John the disciple tells us um, people were coming and being baptized. Well, that's what John was there for, right? Why would John tell us this? Because they were Samaritans. Why would they come to a Jewish prophet? Because the Holy Spirit's leading them too. So, in a rare instance where John the disciple, and, and I love John's gospel. John's gospel, if you've, if, you, if you've never read through the Bible and you want a good book to start with, John's gospel is a good place to start, right? One of the best, one of the best books to start with. Uh, don't dive into the book of Romans, it'll drive you crazy. I'm just saying. I love the book of Romans, but that's a deep book. But John the disciple, John the apostle who wrote the book of John, is not giving a chronological account. John's gospel does not start with, this is the first thing, this is the second thing, this is the third thing, this is the fourth thing. John moves around in time and places based on the topics that he's talking about. But here, he gives us a a chronological indicator in verse 22. I love this. After this, after Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, after this, something happened. Jesus goes and he's baptizing. John moves and he is baptizing. And then in verse 24, another one of those chronological indicators, John had not yet been put in prison. So we know this is between the beginning of Jesus' ministry and when John gets arrested. That's all we know about it, based on John's gospel. Okay, It sets us with some context for the encounter that's about to happen. So first we have the location. They're in Samaria. This is important. A little side note. You guys remember what I've told you the most important key is when it comes to interpreting Scripture? Context. Context, context, context. You've got to take the context of what's in the book. You've got to take what's around the book. You've got to have the context. So historical context is important. The location, we're in Samaria along the Jordan River in this location. Uh, Number two, it's likely during the dry season uh, where the temperature is extremely hot and people didn't usually travel very far. Third, it's still really early in the public ministry of Jesus before the first Passover that he celebrated with the disciples. And one other important thing here, before we go any further, this is more of an interpretive clue. When John uses the word Jew in his gospel, he is specifically, most of the time, talking about the Pharisees and the experts in the law. He's not just talking about anybody of Hebrew descent. He's talking about those who are the religious scholars. Okay? So we're in the summertime. We're in Samaria, and John tells us a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Why are we talking about purification? Anybody read the Old Testament before? Raise your hand if you read the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. No cheaters. 
All right, because here's how this normally works. I'm going to read the Bible, right? So I start out and I read Genesis, and that's a, that's a good book to read. And then I read Exodus, and it's really powerful. There's a lot of stuff going on. And then I hit Leviticus, and I get kind of bogged down because there's all of these different rules and, and the, 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 di- the, the, the ex- instructions for building the tabernacle and the instructions for the priest to be purified and the dietary restrictions. And I slog my way through the book of Leviticus, and then I get to the book of Numbers, and I start reading a census report. If you make it to Deuteronomy, it's Leviticus part two. And so most people are lucky if they ever get to the book of Joshua. But in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, where you're slogging your way through all of those things and you probably don't remember half of what you read, baptism was part of the rite of purification. You see, when the um, the Levites, when they went to serve in the temple or in the tabernacle, they had to be washed. They had to be baptized. When people went to eat, they had to wash. Their hands had to be baptized. They had to be clean. When women, I didn't make this up, this is the book of Leviticus, don't blame me, blame God, okay? When women would have their monthly cycle, or when they would have a child, they would have to go through a period of uncleanliness, and then they would have to be baptized as an act of purification before they could go worship. If you came into uh, in the contact with a dead person, right? Even if it's as simple as you wake up and, and you find that your, your spouse that you share a tent with has passed in their sleep. You've been in contact with a dead person. If you show signs of a skin disease, you have to do certain things and then you have to be washed to be purified. So here's John at this set of springs and he's baptizing people and he's calling them to repent and be baptized. This is a purification rite. So the Pharisee, who would have been intimately familiar with this Jew, would have been very familiar with the requirements for baptism. They got talking about purification. Remember, he's in Samaria. He's baptizing people. I would imagine this Pharisee who traveled 25 miles outside of town to where John is calling people to repent and be baptized, this guy is hot, he's sweaty, he's watching what's going on, there's all these Samaritans coming up with Jewish people, and they're being baptized. Number one, the fact that the Jews were being baptized was upsetting because we're God's chosen people. What do we need to be purified from? And then the fact that there's Samaritans being baptized in the same water at the same time and for the same reason because they were repenting from their sin. They're the Samaritans. They were worse than Gentiles, by the way. 
So he was offended and he started this discussion. And during the discussion, the topic of Jesus came up. Now remember, Jesus had been talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus came up and said, Teacher, we know that you are sent from God. Because you wouldn't be able to do the things that you do if God wasn't with you. And the topic of Jesus came up, and John's disciples, they come to John and they say, Hey, um, you remember that guy that came to you at the Jordan River? And you made that really weird statement that he was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. You know, the one that you said you weren't worthy to untie his sandals, but then he had you baptize him? That guy? Well, he and his disciples, they went out into the wilderness and they're baptizing people. Is that okay? Is is that something we ought to be concerned about? See, John looked the part of a prophet. Right? You remember John's appearance when he came out of the Judean wilderness to begin with? A tunic of camel hair, a rope tied around his waist. He had been eating a diet of locusts and wild honey. So you got this guy wearing a camel hair coat with a rope for a belt and bits of bug and honey dripping from his beard. Yummy. He looked like a prophet. Jesus was well known. Jesus was a craftsman. He was a builder. He was traveling around with a bunch of fishermen. He had been baptized himself. So to the Pharisee, if John's calling people to repent and be baptized, Jesus just said, I'm a sinner. John looks like a prophet. Jesus got baptized. Therefore, he was repenting from something. Therefore, he's a sinner, right? Well, of course, we know that he wasn't. But to the Pharisee, to John's disciples, he didn't look any different from the rest of the people. And now he's out baptizing people. Is that okay? You know, this isn't the first time this question has ever been asked in the church. Well, it's not the last time. (laughs) It may have been the first time. It's not the last time. During the, the, the period of persecution back in the church, there was a huge controversy about people who had been baptized in the church. And then because the church was under persecution, the priests that had baptized them had recanted their faith because they were under threat of death. And so the question came up, is it, is it okay for a person to have been baptized by somebody who then said they weren't a Christian? Same question. Is this baptism okay? Now, I have to imagine that John's disciples were probably a little bit jealous for their leader's ministry too, Right? I mean, here I am, I'm following John, and he's calling all these people out of Jerusalem to be baptized, and then all of a sudden he moves up to Samaria, and he's calling those people to be baptized. Jesus is still down in Judea. Did I bet on the wrong horse? Am I following the wrong guy? Is this Jesus guy going to take the ministry that John had? So they came to John, and they asked if he was concerned. And I love John's answer. 
I absolutely love John's response. This is, this is the presence of the Holy Spirit in John for, for his 30-ish years. He's just a little bit older than Jesus is, right? Now, a lot of you have heard me say that Peter is my favorite disciple, right? If you've not heard me say that, you've now heard me say that. Peter is my favorite disciple because if there's hope for Peter, there's hope for me. Okay? One of John's disciples who left to follow Jesus was Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother. Now, we have another set of brothers. We have John and James. But we also have a set of brothers. We have Jesus and James in Scripture, right? James who wrote the book of James. That's Jesus' younger brother, James. When you listen to James, boy, does he sound a lot like Jesus in his book. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really common, he sounds a lot like Jesus. So with that pattern, and then you have James and John, sons of Zebedee, right? And they sound a lot alike. Like, Jesus, I can't believe those guys rejected you. We need to call down thunder and lightning and burn that town to the ground. They sounded alike. That's why he called them the sons of thunder. So I have to imagine that Andrew and Peter probably thought alike. And I say that because I can hear in John's response, I can hear, maybe I'm reading into it, but I can hear that tone that John is saying something that he's probably said before. Look, guys, I've already told you this. As Angel pointed out, in chapter 1, when John appears, everybody comes and says, Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No, he's, he, he's, he's in, no, not, no. Are you the prophet? The prophet means Isaiah. Nope, not him either. He died. So who are you? I'm the one sent to prepare the way. I'm the one sent to, to make the road straight for Jesus. So here they are, and they're like, is, is his baptism legitimate? Is this, is this something we need to be worried about? Guys, guys, listen, look. He wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't from heaven. A person can't receive anything. This is verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, I want you to wrap your head around that for just a second. Think of something that you have, whether it's your health, whether it's your family, whether it's your job, whether it's, it's a possession. John says we can't receive anything unless it's from God. Nothing. Everything that we have, and this may be a hard one to wrap your head around, but even the trials and the tribulations that you go through, God permits. Why? Because they grow perseverance, because they grow strength, because they grow us in Christ-likeness. Everything that we have, comes from God's hand.
What did John have to be jealous of? Why would John be concerned about Jesus' baptizing people? Which were later told that Jesus wasn't the one baptizing, it was his disciples. But why? John's answer is, why, why would I be concerned? He's preaching the same message I'm preaching. Wouldn't it be better for two people to spread out and to reach more people with that message? You think? There were ample number of people who needed to repent. So Jesus wasn't stealing sheep. I've heard that phrase uttered between churches, right? You get a new church in an area and that church is stealing our sheep. Churches don't steal sheep, people. Those of us who are responsible for feeding sheep don't do a good enough job to keep them. And those of us who are responsible for bringing more sheep in don't do a very good job at reaching them. Even if John wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't who John had declared him to be, even if he was simply a human prophet, a messenger, who was bringing the same, why should John be bothered by his ministry? Do we have the same benevolence towards other brothers and sisters in Christ? I might, I might meddle a little bit. Okay? You can tell Danny when he gets back next week that Bill meddled. That's okay. I have heard, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell preacher stories, I have heard from other pastors snide remarks about other denominations that come from a place of jealousy or a place of ignorance instead of a place of theor- theological correction. If there are kids in this neighborhood who attended vacation Bible school at Family Life Church on Pops Ferry Road, we ought to be rejoicing. Why? Okay, next question. Are we rejoicing that Family Life Church on Pops Ferry Road had a vacation Bible school and they had children attend it? Are we rejoicing? Oh, you got me convinced. <laughs> Yay! Right? We weren't even aware. Why not? Because we're not out in our communities, maybe? Right? Why wouldn't we rejoice? If there are kids who got to hear the gospel from Family Life Church on Pops Ferry Road versus Bay Vista Baptist Church on Pass Road, isn't it the same gospel? I don't know their theology. I'm, I'm assuming that they are a Christian Bible teaching church. But I should rejoice when other people are doing what God has called them to do. If the Lutheran church on the other side of the fire department, is that Bethel, I think? Bethel Lutheran? Yeah. I couldn't for the life of me remember that name on Friday. Could not for the life of me remember that name. If they all of a sudden see revival because Jesus is being preached, should I be upset because people from the Bay Vista neighborhood across the road that I live in are suddenly going to the Lutheran church versus coming here? No, I'm going to rejoice that Jesus is being preached. 
I shouldn't be fretting over they have more people than we do. I was in the unique position in, in my church up in Gulfport. Um, I, I took the church in 2011 as the, as the, the head pastor. At that point in time, I think we had a, a grand total attendance of 35 people. Okay, six of them were my family. <laughs> and almost all of the rest of them were another family. <laughs> and then when that family started to fall apart, they started to peel off a couple at a time and go to different churches. Because none of them lived where the church was. Most of them lived up in, in Socher, and, and they lived in Lyman, and they lived out off of Wortham Road, and they didn't. And our music minister lived, we were up on Klein Road, north of I-10, and he lived all the way down off of Highway 90 in Gulfport. And so that church, that ministry had dried up. God had snuffed the candle of Olivet Baptist Church. And I know when I say that, I can see that on, on people's faces, that that's a painful idea. God had cut that church. That was a dead church when I started there. Not dead believers. There were still some, some really good godly people there. But the church was dead. But you know what God did? He brought another church in. He brought another church in during a Wednesday night Bible study. He brought another pastor in who was looking to start a ministry in that neighborhood. Because his church downtown in Gulfport had a bunch of people who had family members in that part of Gulfport. And so he asked if he could rent space from us. I had a huge campus. Sanctuary was about this size, longer, not wider. We had a big education building about the size of the FLC. We had classrooms. We had a whole sanctuary. Weren't using the space. Yeah, you guys can, you can use our unused space. As the years went on of that partnership, we actually got to the point where he was outgrowing the space that I was letting him use. And we had shrunk down to the point where I could have taught the entire sermon in a Sunday school class. So we switched. Gave him the sanctuary. And when it was time for us to finally lay the Olivet Baptist Church to rest, his congregation was exploding. I talked to him at the, at the spring meeting this year, and they were looking at having to add a second service at that location. They still have a church downtown in Gulfport that runs two services on Sunday morning. They were looking at having to start a second service at that location because they couldn't fit everybody in the sanctuary. Do I feel bad that my church died? Not in the least bit. Because there's people in that neighborhood that I couldn't reach if my life depended on it, that he can. And see, that takes us to this verse, verse 30. This is, I'm going to, okay, that's an old instructor thing. Kicking the podium. This is on the test. Foot stomping. This is the most important verse in this entire chapter. More important than John 3.16. Verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. 
if I am a follower of Christ and I am growing in Christ-likeness, my identity as the sinful, hard-headed, numbskull, Bill Column must change. I have to decrease. And Jesus in me has to increase. Because if Jesus ain't increasing and I'm increasing, what's happening with Jesus? He's decreasing. I can't make a lot out of Jesus if I'm making him smaller and me bigger. I came to the sudden stark realization in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1998, I came to the sudden and stark realization that the universe does not in fact revolve around me. Are you all surprised? I know you all thought that it did. No. He must increase. I've got to make more about Jesus in my life than I make about me in my life. If that phrase doesn't make you sit back on your heels and think, I don't know what will. I don't, I, I, I would, I ask you guys a lot of times because you sit here and you look at me and I don't get a lot of responses and, and, and sometimes I ask you to stick your arm out and check your pulse to make sure you're actually alive, right? You don't have a spiritual pulse, but if that verse doesn't do something to you, you need to check your spiritual per, uh, pulse. As a follower of Jesus, that should always be my goal. What in me is worthy of existing in Jesus' presence? Anything? There is one thing, and that is the fact that I'm created in God's image. But that image is cracked. It's blurred. It's marred. It's scratched. It's stained. It's darkened by sin. Right? Right? And that sin takes anything else in me that would be worthy of existing in Jesus' presence, it's gone. Every aspect of who I am is dirty, is unclean. My will, my passions, my knowledge, right? We're told in Scripture that one day we will know in full instead of knowing in part. Right? Is there anything that you know 100% that you know fully? I challenge you, you don't even know yourself fully. There are times when something comes out of my mouth and I think, where did that come from? We don't know ourselves fully. We don't know anything fully. In the presence of the holiest being in all of the universe, I should react just like Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6. One of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of the most holy place and the train of God's glory filled the temple And when he realized that he was standing in the presence of God in this vision, what was Isaiah's response? 
Woe is me, I am undone. In God's presence, me in my current condition, I would be vaporized. But as I grow in Christ-likeness, I shrink in Bill-likeness. He must increase, I must decrease. So then John, and I'm not done yet, John goes into what, me, what might be one of the best sermon illustrations on the person of Jesus in the gospel. Verse 31, he, he says, he who comes from above is above everyone, right? Those who are of the world belong to the world and speak in a worldly way. Profanity, snide comments, sarcasm, criticism, slurs, gossip, bragging, that's it's humanity, Right? They're the natural marks of our speech because they're the natural marks of our heart. They are exactly the way we think. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees because the disciples weren't washing their hands before they plucked grain from the the stalks in the field and they started eating it, the Pharisees were like, ah, your disciples, they're unclean because they aren't washing their hands. And Jesus says, it's not what goes in that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of their mouth. Because that reflects the state of their heart. Ooh. Anybody besides me need a new filter? Jesus is different. He doesn't have that sin nature. What he testifies to are the things that he has seen and heard as the Son of God. Jesus is the one who says, blessed are the peacemakers. Are we peacemakers? No, we're not. No, we're not. And be careful. If you say you are a peacemaker, remember, I am Facebook friends with a lot of you. And that counts. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. That's what Jesus says. It's not what we say. The majority of people rejected Jesus' testimony. Newsflash. There has never been a majority of people in any location that are followers of Christ. Never. Christians are always in the minority. We will never be in a majority. We are called a remnant. Can I have a show of hands? Anybody in here who has ever bought fabric at a fabric store? What is the difference between a bolt and a remnant? That's right. A remnant is the little piece of material that's left. A bolt of material, that's the whole product. Right? Scripture doesn't say that God reserves a bolt for himself. It says he always reserves a remnant. 
People reject Jesus' testimony. They reject who Jesus is. They refuse to know who he is. And you know what? People still do that today. Of course, they have to have the opportunity to reject the gospel. Whose job is it to give them that opportunity? That's us. See, we, we, we don't share the gospel because we're afraid that we'll be rejected, right? But that means we're not giving them the opportunity to accept it either. Not everybody denies the gospel. Those that God calls will accept the call to salvation because God sends the Spirit without measure. That's what John says. Without measure. There's no limit. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a cap. Amen. There's no limit to God's grace because God's grace is based on His love for His Son. Not based on His love for the sinner. It's based on His love for His Son. Yeah, He loves us. He loves Jesus. So what is the application of this passage? Let's go back to that that question at the beginning. That question at the beginning was, what are the things that we spend the most time talking about? Are we going to put Jesus on that list? Is your salvation going to be on that list? I'm really challenging us to turn into those people. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? Those people, all they do is talk about Jesus all the time. Yeah. I'm challenging you to be one of those people. Is God's holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, love, grace, are they on the list? They should be. Are we making much about Jesus? Are we showing that he's on the increase and we're on the decrease? Now, what am I telling you? What am I not telling you to do? I am not telling you to not talk about work. It would be very difficult for me to do my job if I never talked about work. Okay? It would be very detrimental to my health if I did not talk about my feelings about work when I get home. I'm not telling you to not talk about the weather. Maybe not complain about the weather so much, because that's something that God provides us with, right? I'm guilty. It's hot out there. I am not a person who does well with hot weather. I'm not telling you don't talk about your kids. Don't talk about your grandkids. But I am telling you that we need to take account to make sure that what we talk about that indicates what is increasing in our lives is not us. That what we talk about, we talk about Jesus and what he's given us. You know, I, I fully understand the biology of having children, okay? But... 
The fact of the matter is, my wife, my kids, my parents, my nieces and nephews, my friends, my aunts, my uncles, most of them, um, they're all a gift from God. I wouldn't have them if he weren't sovereign. And I need to tell people that. My job, the money that I earned, that's a gift from God. I need to share that with folks. I need people to know what he's done in my life. I can still talk about every one of those things and talk about God. So I'm going to advise you all to watch for opportunities to talk to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, the checker at the grocery store, if you can find a grocery store that still has a checkout person. Don't steal their time from their employer. If you go out to lunch today, do not force the waitress to sit down and listen to a 30-minute sermonette on the gospel because then you're stealing money from that waitress. Right? But do, when you pray before you eat, pray for that waitress. Ask her if she has anything going on that you need prayed for. Tell her that you prayed for her health and her prosperity. Share Jesus so that people can come to know him the way we do. Make much about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenges you've given me this week. Uh, It is hard to thank you for those adversities because they are not what I would have chosen. They are not what I wanted. They are not what I planned. They are not anything that I desired. But at the same time, they illustrated that you're the one in charge. You're the one in control. And you have a will that is perfect. Father, as we prepare to give our offering today, remind us in our hearts that what we offer is just an opportunity to give back what you have given to us. To expand the work of your kingdom, to expand the opportunities for getting the gospel to people as we prepare to go out into the world today, whether it's to to go to a restaurant to have lunch, whether it's to go home to take a nap. Father, help us to increase Jesus in our lives. And that means to decrease who we are. Father, we pray all of this because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.